so why don't you guys buckle up and join the ride because we're going to have some fun. Going green! And Abby said, you shouldn't commit illegal acts except perhaps at night and with your parents' permission. Your advice is making less sense than usual. Well, the important thing is family and friendship, honesty, values, and no one got arrested. You see this jerk? This is the same thing. Krapotkin was the same jerk, and Bakunin was the same jerk. Not good. Not good, I'm telling you. It was a, he was a very good dancer. It's a moment. George Orwell, who definitely didn't like socialism of any kind, warned us against it. He wrote books that said that totalitarianism is bad and that sticking with old ideas is good. I got news for you. You gotcha. Did you know population again? I did not know that. I, I never thought you'd lose a Stalin debate. I, 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 you never expect to walk into one. Sure. Avoid Marxism. Or telling her you're a Trotskyite. Trotskyist. Only Stalinists would call the Trotskyist a Trotskyite. And I'm not a Trotskyist anymore. I'm a Maoist. Relentlessly anti-Trump and relentlessly pro-somebody like Obama. I'm not pro-Obama. I've been a critic of Obama. I'm a critic of the Democratic Party. Because I'm literally a communist. Well, you know how it is. The main thing is to get those juicy likes and subscribes. And we can get some more of that sweet, sweet communist money rolling in. You know how it is, bro. You gotta get the communist dollar. Gotta make it to the top. Just imagine somebody saying under cannibalism or under slavery or under dictatorship. Well, there's nothing you can do about it. Well, they'd be wrong. There is something you can do about it. You can get beyond these archaic systems and move closer and closer to fulfilling human capacities. And that's what we need to do. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective. For the curious or the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy. Discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself. The meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. We proudly wave the flags of the three lefts. Howdy, howdy. Hello. I'm your host, Dan Platt, live in the studio, um, this Saturday, the 14th. And I November. am the co-host, uh, Michael Walsh, and I like hanging out. Really throwing it out there. So we've got a lot of different topics today, uh, oh, some yes. of which are lighter since, uh, you know, um, some of us get in the Facebook arguments <laughs> and some of us watch, uh, presidential results and, um, so I just want to like, like a self-fulfilling prophecy, uh, but also cause it's true, you know, our election system completely sucks and, uh, and thus forces people to vote for one of two, uh, terrible people. Yeah. And, um, and thus, especially now with the stakes so high, um, it really like it is, um, so you look at the, um, I have the presidential results, the actual tally okay. of popular votes here. And, uh, let's see. Biden got 75 million All right. to Trump's 70 ish million. Okay. Meanwhile, everyone else kind of was any, any other minor party right. candidate was really left in the lurch, including even the libertarians. They got point 1.7 million, hmm. uh, which is kind of where Jill Stein was in 2016. Um, this is also particularly because the libertarians also ran a, Someone who wasn't just an ex-Republican. Right. Or someone who was, in fact, a Republican governor, which is their usual, like, they had their own leadership battle with leadership, and they kind of got rid of them. The kind of leadership where the libertarians are just Republican light. 
but you have a base of more ex- extremists, basically people who are ANCAPs or various types of Randian who are like, right. we don't want to run Republicans anymore. They're still part of the establishment. And so they did worse this time. And that also kind of includes us Greens, where we ran someone who's an actual eco-socialist right. and not just someone who is a socialist but pretending to be kind of some radlib. Right. Uh, or something like that. And so our final vote tally for Hawkins, uh, we were really, it was a really bad year, obviously. We got three, 340,000-ish. There are some states where we only did marginally better than, and these are states where Kanye was on the ballot. Oh, no. We did marginally better than him. Like, oh. I think there were some states like Vermont <laughs> oh. where Howie got 8,000 to his six. And, um, now overall, Connie overall got, uh, 60,000 ish. Okay. Um, so we still have quite a well, that, number that, that more. Well, that's good that we didn't lose to Kanye on four the times, vote four plan. times more, cause that, but that we were on more ballots. Right. There was also, um, Rocky DeLafonte, who was running, yeah, multiple running mates, depending on the state, I suppose. And he ran on something that was a new formation called the Lions Party. Now I checked out their site or rather their, that post-election a podcast, and they're pretty much like the modern Whigs. They're they're like rad centrists, or they're just regular centrists. And otherwise, they don't really talk about policy or strategy. Only that um, they talk like any other third party does when they're just starting out, and they feel like they've got momentum because they were on some states. They had seven candidates. They would have had more if there weren't. If the coronavirus didn't cut a lot of petitioning off. Right. Uh, same with us, I suppose. But we had 120 candidates running across the country. They had seven. And most of them were in South Carolina. There's, let's see, Gloria LaRiviera, which is the actual communist. She got, um, 66,000. So more than Kanye. That's good. So, <laughs> and she, and she's only on the ballot in like, hey, I if I know, could rank choice five. voting, I would she rank would be the our PSL second. second. She would be our second. And there, and anyone voting for her, Howie would be their second. Hopefully. But there's some other parties that would also like, should have been, I would think they would like, should be in coalition with us. Next down is the Constitution Party. Now these are like real moderates, like the super moderates. Mm. Um, they, they're just super capitalists. Um, they, their candidates were Don Blankenship and William Moore. Uh, they got 57,000. Brock Pierce was right behind with 43. And this is over the whole country. So just imagine, like, you really have to be politically engaged to want to, like, not vote for Biden or Trump. Right. Or at least to feel like this is how my vote's going to count by voting in my state election, even though there's going to be more, like, say, in this state, there's going to be more Trump voters than Biden. Right. And, you know, in New York, there's going to be more Biden than Trump. Yeah. But yes, as as many normies could say, like the numbers say that this isn't really a victory because, well, it wasn't a landslide. Only five million more. Now, over 70 million for each candidate is record breaking. Yeah. But it's still just five million more as far as just like um, versus this whole like, oh, yeah, we want Biden to win in a landslide. And that's how we have a mandate. But a mandate to do what? Like cut social security? No, a mandate for Trump to actually uh, concede. (laughs) Oh, yeah, because that's what it takes, right? There actually has to be some material reason for Trump to do anything and not just 
his emotional state. Like, where have you been the last four years? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that, um, I want to comment on just how afraid certain people, at least on Facebook, have been about like, oh, Trump fired some generals at the Pentagon. He's preparing for his coup and he's not conceding. Oh, it's everything I feared. I'm like, that's what scares you. Not like that we didn't close Gitmo, that there's no discussion of closing the micro camps or like what, what Biden's no, going to make a task force and that task force. That. Yeah. Yeah. The task, I mean, the, the task force, you know, he's going to make a task force and in a year's time, the task force will propose some streamlining and <sighs> that, that will be that. Let's see next under, let's see. There was a, so there's the American Solidarity Party. They they had a line in Vermont and a few, you know, I don't know, other mm-hmm. states. States where getting on the ballot is easier. Not yes, easier. Vermont, New Hampshire, those are easier. So I don't know actually what they're about, American Solidarity Party. I mean solidarity makes me think they're leftists. Right. But maybe what they're maybe they're social democrats. Then there's an Allison Kennedy and Malcolm Jarrett Socialist Workers Party. Hmm. Uh, so they're fellow socialists, but they they're like the kind that don't like working with other socialists because you could ask them like why. And there was another one called like the equality something party. Right. And it's like, why don't you endorse, endorse Hawkins yeah. or why don't you endorse Riviera if it's a matter of right. communist independence or something and not working with liberals like the Greens have? I mean, it basically comes down to this tendency of like, we're the real workers party. Everyone thinks they're the real workers party. Yeah. We need to combine. We need to make a mass workers party. Yes. All of the workers parties are workers parties. Just yeah. because you're like, no, we're the real, real ones. Work- yeah. It's toxic vanguard. Uh, Let's see. There's a uh, independent lines. So this means like they maybe ran on like one line or they had some rich backer so they could buy right. the petitioners needed to get on some ballot line. Um, there's a Jade Simmons hmm. who looks pretty interesting. There was a unity party, which unity just suggests maybe nationalists. Um, yeah. and here's where we're just spitballing. They got 5,000. Uh, Jade Simmons got 5,000. The socialist workers got 6,000. So they got, yeah. The Solidarity Party got 21,000, by the way. Um, oh yeah, I skipped the Independence Party, which was Brock Pierce and Carla Barnard. They have a line here in New York. They got 43,000 overall in the country. Most people become paper members because they think they're registering as an independent voter. Right, yeah. Um, but that's not the case. So they're kind of like a fake transaction transactional party hmm. and that's very true under them is um they ran under the label progressive party was dario hunter who ran in the green party and uh basically uh threw a fit of sorts well when he lost yeah pretty much and it's just it, it was all shady there's a lot of shadiness there and and it, but her husband, i've seen a lot of ventura fans who are also really salty that he didn't win the primary that he didn't run in. Okay, so here's where, like, it, it comes back to, we were having a conversation about Vosh, Vosh bad or not bad, and I was giving my critique over again. But really, like, there, there's, a, there's a different type of toxicity in left circles or something where it's like, if it's not my way, uh, I can't compromise. Or right. it's like, and then this is, and I see this as, this is a problem of edginess. Of, like, in order to project strength and principles, 
and be, you know, it's, it's actually what toxic masculinity is. You're not just being, you're not reformatting masculinity. You're just repackaging the old type of mm. I'm projecting strength by not being compatible to anything else. So if I don't get my way where a celebrity is endorsed by the green party, then I'm not voting for Howie. You have a bunch of people not voting green because as they put it, they didn't get their way. Right. Either Dario didn't win. Uh, so they voted. So like the 4,000 votes for Dario. Right. And then, um, the, the Alaska greens, I mean, it wasn't full. It was, there was shenanery happening, but they gave their line to Ventura. Really? Yes. But it was, it was like a gang of three that, you know, did it like in the, they did, they did some shenanigans. But again, like when we run a, oh yeah. And you could say like, we'll look at like Kanye. Kanye is right. the pinnacle of like the base, the votes you get when you run a celebrity with name yeah. recognition. Everyone who voted for Kanye was because he's Kanye. That's 62,000 votes. Right. That's basically like where it's like, is that really what you want? Cause that's what we'd get. If, if Kanye or like if Vittura was the Green Party candidate, like we would lose a lot of people. Yeah. You'd get your way, but your like kind of Dario's base or fan base, it's 5,000 votes. You right. ain't, you ain't nothing. You're not like they, they've convinced themselves that these, this is what's required to, um, get more people interested in the campaign. It's like if we have a celebrity, then the cable news outlets will cover us. Yeah, they'll cover us to make fun of us. Yeah, that's and true. They, and, and nobody who's watching that is like, yes, I will want to vote for Ventura now uh, against Trump. Emotional argument or not. Let's see. There's also, oh, yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah, Ventura. And Sylvia McKinney was named as his running mate. Um, Who? But you know what? That's Sylvia McKinney was our candidate in 08. Okay. But you know what? I think that's just the Alaska Greens basically putting her name as the VP candidate. Okay. I don't know if she consented to that or not. It's not like Ventura did. I mean, he basically just said, like, yeah, I'll run as a green if you give it to me. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> what? <laughs> that's not how it's presidential like, it's like, campaigns work. It's like party crashing. It was wedding crashing. But anyway, the votes they got in Alaska was uh, about 2,000. Then um, there's a bunch of others. If you forgot, there's still a prohibition party. <laughs> I remember them being covered. There's still a prohibition. Party. I remember them being covered in 08 by the Daily Show or something like that. There was a. That's the most boring party that we have now. Similar to how, like the the original reason Trump ran for president was to boost his brand. Right. So you have some, uh, apparently some similar projects going where a Ricky Sue King and a Daniel Chandler ran on the line genealogy, know your family history party. Oh no, that sounds like the ring, <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Come here, cousin. I love you. No, 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 no. The no? genealogy, know your family history part, know your family history is like an ad. <laughs> so maybe it was a joke. Wait, maybe wait did they run for president on the line of Ancestry.com? Well, that's it's either that or they're memeing. <laughs> that and they got 550 votes somewhere. Hey, that's uh, that's um, not nothing. Let's see. There's one called the Approval Voting Party, and I know approval voting is yeah. not like ranked choice, no, but it's it's a, it's a kind of similar reform where yeah. you 
Well, I, I, know, know what it is. I know what it is. So what All it is, fans. is that you're given the list of options. Instead of just voting for one, you vote for all of the options that you would be okay with. Mm-hmm. So it's basically whoever saying, has the most consent. Right. Checks. So you would go into the ballot and I, they would want me to say, all right, I think Biden is better than Trump. So I'm going to vote for Howie, Biden, Gloria, and all the other left candidates. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, all of the left candidate votes are worthless. It's the Biden vote. They just want me to say that I approve of Biden so they can give it to Biden. And I, the problem with approval voting is that it does not eliminate strategic voting. No. How if you are afraid of... But ranked choice does. Ranked choice argument. does eliminate uh, strategic bo- For voting. For the most part. Well, I think you can still game it, but it's it's not as easy or blatantly obvious well, why approval voting... Well, the gaming of it is voting. how it works. That you yeah. you rank the choices. Yeah, 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 the way course. to game it would yes. be to rank it, all the options from smallest to biggest. So your vote has the maximum Impact, power. Yes. Well, approval is just like, oh, yes, look, Biden got more votes. It's still a one right. vote for them, not yeah. based on preference. But, yeah, it doesn't. So it's basically like, what if voting took even like you could vote for multiple people. So you get. That feet like symbolic, fe- uh, symbolic feedback, but you don't get the, um, the nuance. Like, right. you're like, oh no, wait, like, I think these are the guys that like rank choice is too, like, they're the, it's, it's too, too complicated. complicated. <laughs> we need to reform the voting system, but not like that. Not like that. Um, so social equality, that's the one that I was thinking of. They're based in Chicago, particularly. They got 180 votes. I think all of them were in the loop or something. Okay. The Chicago loop I refer to. But, their candidate was named Joseph Kishore. I saw him uh, do a live stream once or something. Hmm. And again, it's like he's a good socialist, but then it's just like he's the real socialist. Right. And that's that. I'm the true vanguard. Well, he, he was not like the other vanguard. He wasn't asked, why doesn't the Socialist Equality Party like the Socialist Party U.S. critically or uncritically endorse Hawkins or do a critical endorsement it, like S.A. did? Um, so there is a, two guys ran as the boiling frog, uh, Gary Swing and David Osaisa. They got 135. There is still a bull moose. <laughs> uh, cause again, and that's like the, the modern wigs, but the modern wigs were actually trying. Like they had a website. They were do, doing this thing where like, look at all these people who, who used to be wigs, like the, the old wig party. Right. Kind of ignoring the fact, like, why did the wigs, die. Well, the Whigs died because they weren't progressive enough and then yes. they were replaced by the Republican Party, yeah. which was more leftist and progressive than them. Because Whigs wouldn't solve or take a stand on the slavery Exactly. That, yeah. That's what it that's, came down That's what to. it was. Then, yeah, so approval voting got uh, about 400 votes. The fact that the Republican Party went from the progressive leftist party of the platform of the abolition of slavery, which was a radical idea. Yeah. And the fact that that party has gone from the progressive left to proto-fascist is kind of incredible to look at and to study. Well, the first, it comes in steps. So step one was the Republicans. Well, as soon as they, the, yes. after the Civil War, they yeah. were like, all right, now what? And then they're like, oh, we know. Let's get, let's sell out. 
Okay, so first, business. first of all, so there were there were different wings of the Republicans. There and they're called the radical Republicans, right? Like like the so Democratic Socialist Dems today. And the radical Republicans had a majority of sorts during the Civil War and during Reconstruction. With Reconstruction and all of the turmoil and stuff, they were voted out. And so the Republicans became much more moderate and capitalist focused, right. industrial, industrialization focused. And also then being in power for 20 years, then they get corrupt. Yeah. Um, and so that's how the Democrats, along with basically racism and all the, all the other stuff come back. Also because the Democrats were also not just a monolith because you had populist farmers and stuff like that. Well, it that. took until the civil rights movement for the modern incarnations of the Republican and Democrat Party to finally solidify. Yeah, so, like, we're, we're still in this era, like, you know, if you, you can separate American history or all history into eras, and, you know, you have a history of, like, in each era of American history, the parties did different things. They had different functions, different roles as far as who they served. Capitalism is always at the end of the day, but what kind of capitalist? There's different types with different interests, and that's why they there's two different parties. Having a workers' party is like the socialists, like the communist party used to be, and and but they they were basically killed by the McCarthy era. Right. It, was, it was unfashionable. Like you had so many artists and other figures, public figures, Hemingway, for example, who were revolutionary socialists. But after 1950, they had basically had to downplay it, or they had to like it was it was just not mentioned because it would get them in trouble. Right. It wasn't. It couldn't be part of their life anymore. And then by the, it was by 75, the House Un-American Activities Committee was actually disbanded. It wasn't until 75 or 73 or whatever. And, and you think like, hmm, what happened that year where they actually thought, okay, our work is done. There's no more communists. It wasn't, or, or rather the myth is that they disbanded because the 60s happened and people fought back and now asserted that there was freedom of speech and you could be, you know, you could have non-fascist politics, basically. Yay, non-fascist politics. <laughs> you could be an actual liberal and uh, not be ashamed anymore. Because right. in the 50s, uh, you basically, you were harassed for being even a liberal. Uh, you know, you're pinko. You're pink. Not red, but pink. And that's what pinko kami means. Mm, I oh, to. That, um, I didn't know that. That's I mean, I, I just, what it was a week or so ago, I watched the movie Trumbo, which is the story of... Uh, one of the blacklisted Hollywood writers who wrote Spartacus oh. uh, and a bunch of other award Oscar winners, but he couldn't accept them because he was ghostwriting. And his plan was to basically give him and all the other blacklisted writers jobs through ghostwriting. And so they basically subverted and made the blacklist a joke by making it so that all of the war-winning movies were written by socialists who were blacklisted. <laughs> I love that. I need to watch that movie now. Um, yeah, but yeah, and but it, he didn't make it acceptable to be a socialist or right. be a communist party member like he was again. Uh, that was all gone. It was just a victory just to be able to feed his family, right? Um, and write. The good art, you know, because Spartacus has some pretty anti-authoritarian themes and stuff. Uh, you know, it's a worker revolt, for God's sakes. Yeah. So, so that's the presidential results. Um, obviously not good for us. Lost ballot lines. And so then this, the rest of the show will be a reassessment of like, what can the Greens do? And how does that fit into our kind of plans locally here? What will we bring this up in our local meetings of like, because, okay, so there's, there's the 
options that have been coming up from some of our members of like, you know, we really shouldn't be doing elections. We should just be funding community projects. You know, we have our thousand dollar a year budget. Um, and after we have a good amount in the bank, we spent a good portion of it on tax banking and stuff to get out the vote for Howie in New York. Uh, it feels like, you know, what, what could that do? But at the very least, county by county, it looks like everyone who is a registered green voted Howie. But we know that was not the case. We, there would be greens that were voting Biden. Yeah. Um, in New York, you know, we talked oh. about them previously. So half three in. But anyway, back to, let me just a quick, uh, note from Howie. This is the kind of addendum to the campaign, um, president anyway. But of course, the campaign, the fight is never really over. Right. Um, it's continuous. Cont- continuity is, is a theme. The green socialist opposition to the next administration begins now. Green socialist being prime wait, words. Wait, one sec. To, I'm sorry, yeah. but you never, uh, said how many votes Berman Supreme got. He wasn't listed. He wasn't listed. Was he a write in? I think so. It didn't, it didn't list write ins. Oh. But if there was an other category, then Vermin Supreme might be in well, it. But there are a lot of other write ins. Well, Vermin Supreme is. A lot of people say they're write ins. One of stuff. my favorite politicians right now. Anti politician. Yeah. I mean. Well, he did not concede the election. He yeah, claimed victory of the election. Herman <laughs> right. Supreme won the presidency. It's up to you to prove that he didn't win. Oh, definitely. Um, yes. He's a friendly fascist and that's, that's what makes him, uh, better than Trump. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I always like how he does in fact change like the, the things that he'll say he'll do. Cause when he started, it was just about the teeth and the mandatory toothbrushing. And then it's like, Oh no, now I'll give people ponies. Yeah. And, uh, and then it's like, oh yeah, I'll solve it. The energy crisis with zombies. Well, I remember, um, in 2016, Jeb Bush was asked if he would go back in time and kill baby Hitler. Yeah. And then Vermin Supreme replied saying, Jeb Bush says he would. I'm saying I'm gonna. (laughs) (laughs) Why won't anyone commit to? Going back in time and killing baby Hitler. I don't know. It's a, this is what makes me the person you should vote for. <laughs> I love him. So this is a joint statement by Hawkins, Walker and, you know, their team. Our campaign has just begun, just begun to organize. So there, there's a bit of like, um, we're, I'm, we're, st- I'm starting with the kind of the least realistic as far as just like the tone is concerned. Okay. But, uh, cause it's just the kind of raw, raw, like, come on guys. We did, we did our best and we're going to keep doing our best. But it's also just a statement of like the situation. Right. Uh, real so- solutions can't wait. And in the immediate days ahead, our campaign will be in the courts and in the streets if necessary to fight for full and accurate vote counts. So the real winners of this year's election take office, regardless of the relative balance of power. And there are some greens that c- consider this selling out. Hmm. Like there were people upset when, uh, Jill Stein, funded the recounts with the rest of her campaign donations. Really? Yeah. And and this was a kind of a thing about like what the difference between like Howie and previous green outings for president is that this was purely a party campaign. Like the mm-hmm. green party nationally, this is what we did as an organization. It wasn't a celebrity with their, you know, import and resources. Right. Jill Stein was independently wealthy. And, oh. and, and being an independent organizer almost, she 
fundraised a lot and she did it, but it was her campaign that got the money. The party was left to wilter and be deprived of resources. It's not like she had an obligation to, but it would have been nice if instead of like someone will argue, instead of spending it on the recounts, which only helped raise the vote count for Hillary, you know, why are we helping the Hillary campaign? We're doing their dirty work for them. Basically, they should be fighting for recounts. Right. But they won't. So instead, but we're basically taking the highway by saying, see, we are actually for election integrity. The Dems are not. But that's not the message anybody got. What the message got was Jill Stein is funding recounts. Why would she do that? Uh, she's a Russian agent, blah, blah, blah. Ah. But it came down to we want the party, the organization that we're members of, to basically be where the money goes and the oh, money well, is spent yeah, on the campaigns instead of the campaigner controlling that money. Right. So that was kind of one of the reasons we didn't go for a celebrity and we didn't go for the same old, same old. Well, that makes sense. Uh, why the party picked Howie to run as our candidate. And that's apparently, you know, as corrupt as the DNC, as the Dario folks would say. Building that party must become a common effort. Uh, so to advance this program, you know, that we all know and love, we need more than single-issue organizations and campaigns that compete with each other for attention, time, and money. We need to build a political party that brings issues and constituencies around a common program and mutual support, like mutual aid. Building that party must become a common effort of green and other independent socialist and progressive parties and groups who want a united mass party of working people who all love peace, justice, freedom, environment. Uniting existed independent left is not enough, of course. We must organize into a party of people who now vote in low numbers because they feel the two corporate parties don't represent them. So that's basically everybody that we just listed there. Yep. All those different things. They are the future mass base of an independent party of the green and socialist left. The path forward to becoming a major party in the U.S. is from the bottom up. We must build a mass membership party rooted in strong local chapters that can elect thousands to local office. And on that foundation, then state and house that we go on through the 2020s. I found it particularly annoying whenever people uh, talk like the Greens do not do this. Yeah. Uh, like, why don't you run people for local office? Well, uh, you we're, mean like we're the, trying. We, we, we run hundreds every year and they need donations, too. Why don't you just donate to them instead of our presidential campaign then? You know, uh, we have a list of them on our site. Yeah. And, uh, our candidates always boost them. They go to their events and stuff like that. And we do that synergy. And, and it's of course like, well, how do you have local candidates if you don't get it attention for your party in the first place? Right. You know, you're not going to just do that locally. You can, but it's a grind. Um, yeah. you need a brand of sorts to, that people can recognize so they can make a decision about support or not. Otherwise, it is just personal, like, well, do I like this person or not? Do I know them? Are they some uh, organizer in the community right. or are they some established person already? Which is usually the case. Greens that do win local office are already figures of some type in the community. Right. Or they're some established in some way. Uh, or they're not. They're usually the ones that aren't activists, actually. And that's what I mean. They're established in some other way as a business owner, as uh, mm. you know, with progressive mores. So it lists out the the platform again, which includes job guarantee, income uh, guaranteed income above poverty. So that is both guaranteed job and basic income. Hey. You need both because one or the other 
is pretty weak and favors capitalists. Yeah. Uh, community control police and drug war, which means decriminalization, which poor, uh, which Oregon did. Yeah. For them. Oh yeah. I saw that. I, I want to go to Oregon just to have an adventure now. Well, Portland is always hopping. Really puts Portlandia into a new context. <laughs> Take, uh, in the peace initiatives, of course. I found it interesting that Howie, when doing his stump speech, either on cable or any interview, like his third issue was nuclear weapons. Hmm. And he could have kind of spun it more into an anti-imperialist narrative of like, we're spending another trillion dollars on nuclear weapons. But instead he would kind of just make it about how like we, we don't have the nuclear arms treaty anymore or the test ban. Hmm. And so it's like, I don't think that's gripping people, or at least it's not saying why people would care. I think saying we're going to spend another trillion dollars just on nuclear weapons to modernize them so we can keep threatening to blow up the world. <laughs> I would, I would parse them more like that. Um, yeah. But, hey. Uh, well, he's part of the, like, he's older. So, like, the yeah. anti-war, anti-nuke anti-nu- movement. Nuke. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's just his, like, who he is. Like, right. being anti-nuke. And then also, and also, like, he would make it important because there is this serious trend of, of going nuclear. Like, it's part of the democratic platform now. It's all lined up to basically be subsidized, like, subsidized nuclear again. And, there's a lot. Of, it's not just dangerous. It's really inefficient. It's a waste of money. It's just another cash cow for these large companies that build nuclear plants. There's no mom and pop grassroots <laughs> nuclear plant. Yeah. It's centralized power that's going to be controlled by like some monopoly company, mm-hmm. you know. And and, and so when, when it hurts when so socialists or progressives are like, "Why are you against nuclear? It's it's clean." It's like, no, it's not clean. Unless they're like these little micro nuclear plants or like the thorium, but that hasn't been developed yet. Well, it's yet. not clean until we figure out what to do with the waste because we are just. But there's nothing figured out. So much. You waste. know, oh, the plan, the, you know what the plan is? Dump it on native lands. That's what the plan is. <laughs> yeah. But also, as been pointed out I've, on an earlier ecology show, is that the uranium and the minerals for fueling the plants also come from native land. So why don't you go to the Navajo reservation and tell those people there that, oh, we need renewable energy for our ever-growing economy. Sorry, but we have to irradiate your uh, home even further. Yeah, that's... uh. But that's something that those you know nuclear backers don't think about. But we will, and we will definitely talk about that more in the next hour. Let's see, there's also... Oh, yeah, and just... Okay, and let's go for the clean elections thing, because this is what's really like we're probably going to need to focus on particularly is ending voter rights and voter suppression, the provisions of the Voting Rights Act, universal voter registration, definitely voter verified paper ballots, rank choice, and, and this is something we didn't mention before, proportional representation. I think rank choice is is a good tool, but until we have proportional representation, it doesn't, like, so, like, okay, in the main election. So I, I have to retract that um, what I said last week or something. Susan Collins has, in fact, won that race. Okay. Despite sounding like, and I'm being crass here, like she just had a stroke. Maybe she did. Um, but she talks like this. Anyway, I'm doing the thing that <laughs> Trump was, like, bashed for, you know, making making fun. I'm not making fun. I'm just saying she's very, very old, and it's, why is she still... Why does she still want to be a senator at this point? 
uh, just holding on the power and yep. she had, you have to take it out of her dead, cold, dead hands. Uh, I'm surprised that she still won, um, actually. But uh, anyway, and even with Lisa Savage, our Green Party candidate, in a ranked choice race, most commentators, whether they be Chapo Trap House or in the cable news, would not. Oh yeah, a- Amy Goodman of Democracy Now. Why? You know, it's like I, I'm always uncomfortable bashing Democracy Now when I talk to other people. But here's an instance where I'm actually like, they didn't cover our Green Party candidate in a ranked choice race. Yeah, that's uh... they dropped talking, mentioning Lisa Savage, and just making it about the Democrat and the Republican. Uh, yeah, Is that being anti-imperialist, Amy Goodman of the War and Peace Report? Mm. And so that's where it's like, I think it's fake. It's fake doing that. It's fake news doing that. Uh, cause you're erasing the actual choices and the actual. How did Howie do in Maine? Cause Maine did rank choice and. Can you uh, bring that up? Well, um, I thought, yeah, I kind of covered yeah let me do it. Cause I want, I want to explain proportional representation where, which would be a radically different voting system. So it's simply, um, and it's something that not many countries have, but I think it's what Germany has where you get, the number of seats in a legislature based on your vote total. Yes. If you get five, two percent of the vote, you get two percent of the seats. So this guarantees, even if like one percent out of a body of a hundred, you will have at least one person there. And the more, and, it, and it's an incentive for everyone. It's like, help us get a higher vote total. Your vote, in fact, matters. It's like you will actually be represented, even if we only get. 20%, 15%, 10%, whatever. In Germany and other places where it's not so much more proportional, but what, 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 how it works is, I believe, is you actually just vote for the party and the party actually picks someone who would be the rep for each area. Right. So in that case, like, and this is the thing, you are in fact voting for the party and the platform and not the individual. Because otherwise, without proportional representation, it really is just, do you want this? individual person or this individual person and the policies and the platforms all get subsumed by horse race coverage and you know the usual qualities of american electioneering which go on for too long and uh and and people aren't really it's not about the party but this whole thing like um yeah vosh did this where it's like make elections good again or something or fair again it's like they're never fair. I know what you're doing. You're using the MAGA phrase, right? Right. But it's like, anyway. Yeah, so, okay, we'll, you know, we'll skip that, but I'll definitely reference that in the show notes if you want to read the rest of the statement and just go f- a re- retread of the platform. And basically just stating that, like, well, we're not going away. This, is, this isn't the end of us. Uh, it just means we might change our strategies, but particular that, you know, next year's local elections, we will run candidates. Our particular idea is to just want to run one race really well and win it and run to win because um, you need a lot of support and help and money to do it. So why don't we just focus on one instead of multiple places? It doesn't look good as far as just optics of like, you know, you just have one candidate out of all of these local races that exist. Right. Like, yeah, but we actually want to win one for a change. Otherwise, you could have 10 candidates, but they all get 10% of the vote. Well, I am really excited to try to be that candidate for Congress yes. for the 20th district. I mean, you're guaranteed uh, 15%. Yeah? Yeah. That's that's a high-end guess, but um, that's if, like, 
You could do nothing. Like I ran a media campaign for county executives the first time. I was a placeholder. Okay. So I just did some interviews because I was a third party candidate running for county exec. Right. There and this is a we're in a one party state here. The yeah. Republican doesn't matter or isn't really an issue. Um it's going to be a three to one actual like that's what the vote counts turn right. out to be. Because uh, you know, the county Dems are very moderate. Uh, they're kind of what I think of as Democrats that speak progressively but are really just kind of maintaining their right. in a holding pattern. And they were trying to take our line using um, the, the rules we have in New York, which are terrible. And so I was a placeholder just to block that. And like, oh, why don't I appear on media and practice that and then get my candidate legs, so to yeah. speak. Uh, practice public speaking and uh, get out of that anxious shell. And I pretty much did. And I got 4% of the vote. I got like 3,200 votes. Hey, that's not um, bad. Countywide, which is more than what Howie just got in the last presidential election. So I'm kind of thinking of those numbers. Like those are the people that voted for a green because a green was on the ballot. And it's also being like a, you have midterms or right. it's the year that's before a presidential election. So there's really no stakes involved right? as far as like, there's no one else on the ballot. This is just the people who are voting are the habitual ones. Right. And there was a green on the, on the candidate there. And I was covered by the Altamont enterprise, a local paper out in the boonies, a suburb and uh, a few other radio shows. So otherwise like they, if it, if the, if the race really matters, uh, mass media will only cover us in the last week. Right. And that really sucks too. Uh, I think I wanted to, um, so I mentioned the Libertarian Party, and I've mentioned them before, but not in full, where there is a group of socialists that joined the Libertarian Party. Oh, yeah. Now, this is under the rubric that, like, Libertarian Party is the biggest third party. It's because they're well-funded by rich people. Right. And uh, But they also do have a good base, too, of avid supporters, a lot of, you know, Online communities, let's say, who are very passionate uh, and love debating online. And, and at least if they're going to participate politically, and a lot of them do in various ways. I don't know if they really outnumber leftists, but they seem to be more united in action, at least when it comes to electoralism. They're okay with electoralism. Other leftists will argue about how to do it, and they will vote Democrat. You know, a lot of libertarians just... Because their other option, the Republicans, and so there's really not much in common between them, except they love money. But uh, otherwise, they they know how um, how different they are, and they're not going to say, "Well, vote for the green if it's safe or if the Democrat isn't progressive enough," which is what happens in New York with, for the governor and stuff. Um, but there's uh so we talk about left unity a lot, but there's also bottom unity. Yeah. So that's what they're practicing and they're kind of giving it a shot because, um, so they joined and formed a socialist caucus in the libertarian party. I just, uh, requested to join the Facebook group. Oh, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> now there's, there's also their group, their page, and there's a discussion group that I'm in. And on there, it's posted by a, uh, Jozano McDuff. At least that's the handle. Uh, he listed the three theories of bottom unity, which is also uh, could also stand in for left unity as okay. well. But bottom unity is the idea that it is easier for, say, us left libertarians to work with other right libertarians than it is to work with MLs and people in those other socialist parties, those right. other independent left groups. 
I think both are equally hard slash easy. Okay. I don't think it matters. That's my take. Well, I um, think bottom unity can be easy if you avoid the leftist buzzwords. Like if you are able to explain the leftist ideas, but without using the words that instinctively alienate all right-leaning people, then you can, you can get along with uh, a little bit of bottom unity, but it depends on yeah. the person That's and their true. experiences. That's they've been going hog and they've been getting some success. Like they actually get some other, not tastemakers, but other podcasters and stuff to actually shift towards a more moderate libertarian or mutualist perspective hmm. because they're like, we're socialists, wage slavery. You know, you, you think taxes are theft? Wait till I talk about profit, uh, profit yeah, yeah, or property. But, but really, they love property. They're propertarians. Yeah. And so they really challenge them on that. And they get mixed results. Of course, they get a lot of, what are these left, what are these pinkos doing here? Uh, you know, get them out of here. They're, they're as bad as Nazis. Well, of course. And then it's like, yeah. uh, but you want to invite the Nazis in. They want, <laughs> yeah, like, they do. Cause there, there is a caucus that wants the Proud Boys to join the Libertarian Party or something or recruit them. And having these socialists there, they're like the counterweight to making the Libertarian Party that toxic cesspit. So they're there doing some good work. And they're actually getting some supporters and, and they basically were the, um, impetus for the Supreme campaign, the actual Supreme campaign. They recruited him to be their kind of stand in for their candidate. Yeah. Uh, the primary. And of course he didn't win it since they're not a majority, right. uh, at all. But I think it was like a quarter or 20%, you know, it's, hey, it's, it's not bad. It's, it's basically a gauge like how much of the party is, is with them. Yeah. And, uh, and that they're gaining that, you know, it's, it's not nothing. Um, which is interesting that in the, uh, with that the Green Party has basically in the same amount of time, the last four years shifted to be more left unity focused, which has been like our, the eco-socialist caucus right. of the Greens that like the socialist, basically the, the socialist caucus and the Greens has been all about left unity and Ignoring the liberals in the party as well. Right. Or, uh, or the people who are more anarchist or libertarian leaning, actually. Cause by working with SP and trying to get some, all these solidarity groups and stuff, it, it actually turned off some of these guys. Hmm. And that's why they joined the libertarian party. Oh. Cause they're like, Oh, you guys really aren't about decentralization and devolving the state. You want like all, cause you look at how his platform, it's all state. Programs yeah. and adopting MMT and stuff. Yep. Not completely, of course, but using some of MMT. You know? Right. Because I some just of it, learned about MMT. Some of it's good and some of it is is incompatible with other Marxist thinking is basically. Uh, could we do um, a little quick explainer of. Yeah, because I just I, I just last night I listened to a, a, a discussion between a Marxist and an MMT guy okay. uh, who identifies as a you know cynicalist. So. Do you mind if I go ahead? Go so, ahead. So, as, as I understand it, MMT is the idea that money comes from the government. The government is where the currency of this country comes from. That's a fact. That's not a. That's not up for an opinion. So, the government spends its money that it prints on the things that the government does, and that the taxes that we pay to the government 
are that is that money being destroyed? How it's not taxes aren't what funds the government. The government printing money is what funds all the government the services and funds the economy. And taxes only exist to take the money out of circulation and prevent inflation. Boom. Now, there's a lot of other economic theory, Marxist economic theory, that kind of disputes this interpretation okay. of things. Um, there's an hour-long discussion. I can't go verbatim because I'm listening to a while of gaming. Right. So, but uh, general like highlights were that you know there's the transactional value of money, or talking about fiat currency. I really like the MMT guy had a metaphor that he was he uses to explain how fiat currency operates or what what's unfair about currency as it is now or how we treat it as a object slash a god he used the metaphor of the business card okay let's say you're uh you go into a building a big room of a hundred you know a bunch of people and one of the the person who owns the building says okay everybody we're having a nice time here it's a party let's say right and it's like uh we need someone to clean up and i will give them a biz my business card if they clean up and then no, no takers. Cause what are they going to do with this business card? Right. But, Oh, uh, my friend over there with the nine millimeter at the door will not let you leave until you show them one of my business cards. Oh. And so suddenly you have now created a mass of unemployed people because mm. they need a business card to, if not survive. Right. <laughs> uh, let's say, let's say, Oh, he will shoot you if you don't have a business card. Or you won't be able to leave to be free right? without a business card. So now suddenly everyone's scrambling for this guy's business card. Maybe he has enough for everyone, or maybe he only has half. right? And then it's like half of you can get a business card by working for me or doing right. some task for me, or in the other half maybe won't. And that's... That's uh, that's a good metaphor to me. I'm uh, trying to. I'm always trying to ha- have find it hard to find plain language to explain really what makes our economy unfair, because it's it's taken for granted that things operate they do because there's some human innate right quality to it of trading, bartering, whatever. And <clears throat> anthropologically speaking, and the evidence is that actually currency is not for barter. Currency is was created in human history and today as simply a placeholder, as you say, for debt. Right. And keeping uh, things, the economy, quote unquote, under control uh, by a ruling class, whether it be a king, priest class, or a priest class of TED Talk uh, speakers. <laughs> so three theories of bottom unity, last few minutes here. One is compatibilism. This is a variation of the Panarchy idea, which is tolerant of voluntary capitalism. Compatibilist supporters of bottom unity support the idea that libertarian capitalists and libertarian socialist communities can coexist under different norms of ownership and modes of production. Therefore, our common object should be in eliminating the state and making all relations voluntary, also known as voluntarism. Left lib and right lib are simply preferences. Although we may disagree on which would result in a more prosperous society overall. Hmm. So a lot of Marxists, MLs, whatever, other socialists would dispute this heavily. You can kind of look at previous revolutions and stuff where you had multiple cells or whatever, and they would then end up fighting. There's no co- coexistence because their interests would be conflicting. Because right. you actually do need control over geography, let's say. 
Uh, one is a temporary alliance. Um, this is the idea of postponing questions of a theoretical stateless society for the purpose of reducing the undue influence of actually existing states. You know, the government, the big government. Right. The state represents the greatest threat to liberty, more so than disagreements on norms of ownership. Hmm. So here's where it's like, so what's more like, what's the biggest oppressor? The big government or the boss, the right. capitalist? But our analysis is that they're one in the same as far yeah. as like there's some bot symbiotic. And that, and that's where it's just like, that's where I'm not really on board for the bottom unity, uh, personally. But yeah, it's just a preference, right? Well, we kind of need to be on some, we need to find some kind of synthesis, which is number three in the dialectic form. Um, but anyway, capitalism and socialism are inherently incompatible due to disagreements about this ownership. However, the reality is that property rights have been completely distorted by the interventionist state, which is the usual position that a lot, many libertarians have, regardless of which side of the face you're on. Let's put our differences aside and sort out the details later. Hmm. which is kind of a let's work together now and fight later kind of line when it comes to any kind of solidarity. But I, I don't like that because it's basically leaving certain issues unaddressed and that they will subconsciously be in play when you're working together. Right. But number three is the synthesis. This is somewhere between the two. Uh, it's a variation on the synthesis idea, which is a tolerant of which is tolerant of this voluntary capitalism. Although our ideologies differ, but we could say there's nothing voluntary about it. Although our ideologies differ, we both have a belief in freedom that allows us to work together on particular issues in good faith. In the meantime, let's organize together, form relationships, establish dialogue with each other in good faith. That's important. And as a result, our ideas will combine and converge towards a completely new ideology, which combines the best aspects of each while removing the bad ones. The left libs will have an impact on the thinking of right libs and vice versa. Seekers of the truth will eventually find themselves on one path. So this is kind of what the synthesis guy is, uh, rather what the, the caucus is doing. They're trying to find a okay. synthesis there, which is mutualism, really. It already has a name right. and an ideology. Yeah. So really they're pulling the left lib guys to, to mutualism by basically holding mutualist positions. Mutualism hmm. is where, and, and this is kind of like um, my friend where, Really, like freedom is free markets. Free markets is socialism or market socialism. Right. That it's a state that intervenes or empowers monopolies. It allows them to exist. But would maybe monopolies, it's a monopoly of violence that's first. So you have to tangle right. with that. And that's something that no libertarian really wants to touch at the end of the day. Um, yeah. But we will, uh, in the next hour. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah, and there's one more thing I wanted to read from a green academic, so we'll hit that before we hit the other two things. So uh, thank you. A little reminder that word of mouth is good for us uh, and for everyone. Please, if you like the show, we have a Facebook page and Twitter and all that stuff. Lots of folks keep saying ever since Hillary rigged the nomination of our plutocratic party that there's a lesser evil that it supposedly is her. When asked to demonstrate this, then they're not so sure. But if they look at the records of the parties they come from, it looks very much to me like a game of zero sum. Both parties love the army and want to arm it more. Both parties voted to start the Iraq war. Both parties push for treaties that benefit the rich. Both parties let the banksters get off without a hitch. Both 
parties or migrants, the Democrats especially. Neither party wants to take many refugees. Both parties vote for crime bills that put the poor in jail. Both are mostly led by rich white males. So I just see two evil people putting on a puppet show. If one of them is lesser, I certainly don't know. Strikes. They both think drones are great. Both parties hold fundraisers for a thousand bucks a plate. Both parties love the pipelines. Both parties love the frack. Both parties run police departments that kill you if you're black. Both parties love corruption, for that is how they run. They both take banksters' money to make sure nothing will get done. So I just see two evil people putting on a puppet show. If one of them is lesser, I certainly don't know. serve the wealthy. Both parties say they don't. Both parties say they'll approve things but the other party won't. Both parties have supporters that make me want to spew. And with each election cycle, it's all that I can do. Not to strangle someone who thinks they know the score. That one is the lesser evil. That's the one we should vote for. I just see two evil people putting on a puppet show. If one of them is lesser, I certainly don't know. Wait, no, yeah. Are we back? Welcome back to the Three Left Show. Uh, sorry for the little bit um, technical thing glitch there. Glitch, glitch, glitch. <laughs> uh, but first, um, so we're back. One more thing of theory before we get into the how does all of these discussions kind of affect like the question of what do we do now? What is the next four years? What right. should our mission be? Um, what should be like, you know, give yourself a mission to do. That isn't just... Let's make sure that we're not in the same position <laughs> that we were last year, where we have to vote for the new, the, the, the right. other fascist, um, that, um, you know, is, isn't the Cheeto. Right. Or, uh, you know, the, 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 the non-blatant fascist versus the other fascist, not fascist, you know, the non So this is from Bill Krimmel. He vote, he ran as a presidential candidate. Uh, for the Green Party in 2016. Uh, he was a candidate for Senate in South Carolina where he lives, but he's mostly an academic. He's the guy that Elizabeth Warren is citing when she writes about inequality, wow. the political economy and stuff. So, and that's the thing. Like, don't, don't just go to the progressives you see on TV. Check out and follow the people that they're quoting. You know, mm. don't take their word for it. You know, if they quote MLK, read MLK yeah. and find out how radical he was. Yeah. And then you read Malcolm X and then you realize what selling out really means and ends all that stuff. So anyway, Ooh. I have an abstract mind. I did well in most school subjects, but was less than great in math. And by the way, this is an open letter that he wrote to the Green Party. So this is kind of like his stump speech slash appeal 
All right. to the party overall. Because he wasn't running to win. He was running to influence the conversation. Hmm. I like yeah. that about him. All prior theories of politics have relied on either the classical liberal notions of political freedom and participation or economic notions of equity, a.k.a. Marxism. Right. I believe there was another level, one that was psychological, dealing with how citizens viewed their polities' politics, polity meaning country, hmm. and embracing Kant's Copernican revolution, or the meaning of the objective world coming not from objects themselves, but from their perceivers. Meaning it's not what a thing is, it's how we view it. Okay. Which is media analysis 101. So then I studied forms, meaning Plato, and continuing in intellectual history from Leonardo and Michelangelo and the rest of the turtles, and in a modernity with <laughs> figures like Marox. Forms are simply the shape of things. Think of a can of soup. Think of a cup of coffee. Soup for my family. All knowledge possesses a shape, and different individuals have preferences for different shapes of knowledge. This being the core of a cognitive-based ideology. Hmm. An ideology that isn't just about, like, our relationships, but right. how we think about things. Interesting. Over the years, what I sought to create was a subatomic political philosophy, roughly equivalent to what Niers Bohr did created in physics. Within any objective group, say a main woman, a range... I don't know what he meant by that, but a, a range of psychologies rests on a continuum of preferences... For analytic ones, meaning apples and apples, comparing comparing things, or a synthetic one, apples and oranges. Okay. Thus, every other, for every objectivity, there's a subjectivity. I suggested that psychological preferences would soon supplement objective variables, meaning how we like how people what people believe will be more important than what what is. Right. Uh, instead of objective variables like race, gender, and religion, uh, it will be our preferences. In the year 2000, regular religious service attendance replaced SES as the principal ideological correlation. I don't know what SES stands for, though. You list it in the same list as race and gender, so maybe just think identity politics. Okay. For a year, for a time this year, I considered offering the Green Party nom presidential nomination. I've run and selected presidential primaries and caucuses before. Had I run, I did. I would have offered three levels a political discourse beyond the discussion of our contemporary issues. I mean, what Jill Stein could obviously do as a spokesperson. Right. The first being candidly theoretical, describing the psychological variable in political attitudes and suggesting the dominance of the analytic form over the synthetic one. I have not used terms like capitalism and socialism for many years. Those 19th century concepts can now be absorbed into a more robust paradigm that exists at the top of a knowledge pyramid to start with forms links the subjective with the objective the idealist uh, dialectic back and forth with the materialist one crosswoven we can unify and strengthen green party positions over the entire panoply of political issues the, the whole platform by embracing what i call the subatomic revolution politics hmm. as was done in physics this enables a more horizontal revolution, or the equal status of the synthetic cognitive perspective with the analytic one. Let's go hmm. back to what he means by synthetic cognition, though. I guess it's like what we created to believe versus what we like believe about a real object. Okay, but that sounds kind of like the difference between Marx and Hegel. It pretty much is. 
not that I'm an expert right. on distinguishing them either. But uh, listen to some Slavoj, you know. Yeah. Uh, he's the hey, gay alien. I listen to he's it. not a Marxist. He's a gay alien. I listen to it when I want to. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. I do suggest that we strongly reinforce our message by acknowledging the cognitive similarity of our positions across many public issues and reflect on the almost universal favor for that cognition amongst all of us. So, like, messaging based on beliefs, not the policy. Okay. Beliefs about the policy. Beliefs about our values. Except he didn't really give a good model. He didn't make a good model of that because he's just speaking. He just used the academic jargon. Oh. So the practice is kind of left open to the people doing it. Right. But anyway, the second level of political discourse deals with the American government structure. The American government is dying. In 1980, I ran for Senate suggesting that our 18th century system designed for property-owning white males was inherently gridlocked and purposely subjected to the exclusive influence of well-positioned elites. Yeah. My campaign, true, my campaign was covered in TRB column, New Republic, Monitor, Washington Post, and other leading journals. I called for a citizens' committee that would recommend constitutional changes at the bicentennial. Consequently, notable Americans met, deliberated, and presented our recommendations to the president. I guess this would be... Bush Sr. Uh, space does not permit discussion of specifics here, but in aggregate, they attempt to redress the overly, buzzword, centrifugal nature of the American political system. Hmm. Ours being the world's most decentralized government. I have researched, written on, and campaigned on our unbalanced system for decades. So when he was doing Stump and other articles, he would say, the Green Party, as one of our 10 key values, we put decentralization. Because we're not like democratic centralists like Lenin, where right. there's one party, it democratically reaches the decision, but then everyone does it right. and then uses authoritarian means to enforce it. Uh, decentralization is about not doing that and having right. more direct democracy and stuff. Yeah. But he points out that at least federally speaking, we're the most decentralized government in the world already. And this is bad. Because it's what allows money to have its political power. And so he's not saying, like, remove it from the 10 key values because it was a long fight to figure out what the 10 values are, the things that we're all cognitively agreeing on. Uh, But that we should rethink it when talking about the federal government and perhaps rethink that. He he didn't have a good suggestion for what to replace it with, but he would use the word centrifugal and that, like, things are spinning inward. Or something. Hmm. But anyway, briefly, uh, the third level are concerns introspective within the Green Party itself. Uh, I believe in the four pillars, which are um, participatory democracy, participatory economy, social justice, and then ecology. All but one portion of one key value, I hope the Green Party will examine its belief in decentralization as applied to the American government. I suggest that our decentralized federal system, government favors corporate, Cognitively analytic political analysis. So I guess think cognitively analytic is like the horse race. Just give me the numbers. Give right. me the numbers. We only achieve political synthesis imperative for co- corporate regulation with a more synthetic structural form, meaning like it's constructed from the bottom up. So that's his open letter. I found it interesting to revisit now. Yeah. And 
let that sit as we then discuss some more contemporary articles about like what the greens uh, some of these were written just during the year. Uh, mostly they'll either sometimes are reacting to basically our results. Our results are never really good. We're not really growing and gaining momentum cycle after cycle. Right. Um, we're changing. So it's not like we're completely stagnant. So that's, but that's different from being momentum. Sometimes it's like if we change a certain way, then we can gain momentum or maybe it will result in something different. Right. But we're not working in a vacuum. Right. We can right. change and basically run a campaign that's from our party, our actual organization of due paying members like a union. But we're still running in a two party system with basically the most important election of our lifetimes. Every every single time. Yes. Every time. But particularly when it's a presidential election and not just an off year or midterms um, where, say, we run a governing gu- gubernatorial candidate and how he gets five percent, which is better than like that one percent thing. Because that's the thing where, like, oh, yeah, and it's for our lawsuit again in New York here to get our ballot line back that uh, Como and the leader of the Democrats in New York have explicitly said in interviews that they expected the working family and conservative parties to survive their new rule change and that it would get rid of all of the other parties, uh, particularly the independence line, which is a transactional party. And uh, so they knew they wanted to get rid of them, but they didn't know how to do it without getting rid of us, too. So as far as Como and even the, the leadership of the Dems is concerned, we're just a casualty. They don't really care. And that's what hurts them more, really, that they don't even consider us like yeah. an enemy. But we are. Um, they just will not going to admit it. Uh, and then, and it, Anyway, I won't go into that. But it's, it, it's fodder for our lawsuit because it's basically like it's their intention to strike us off the ballot, saying right. that we're illegitimate. And it's like, well, if you can't get, uh, you know, over two percent of the vote, but for president though, like, right. you know, it changes year to year. Some years we get five percent, some years we get more, yeah. and some years it's one percent or less. And and like, you're you're gonna judge our viability based on one year. And it's like, well, you got to you know, got to show you can have support. Like, how can we show we have support when we're in this basically all or nothing race? Where everyone is like, gotta vote for Biden, gotta vote for Biden. And that's on all the channels, all the radio, all the ads. We couldn't compete with that. There's no good argument or like, if we had viable support, you know, which we technically do, and we spent a good amount of money, but it didn't really make a difference because we were just a tsunami of lesser evilism. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, this one from a UK green uh, called Bright Green, Independent Media for Radical Democratic Green Movements, which includes a tab for green parties. And it's called White Green Should Be Learning from Leninism. So this is also a to add on to a previous, in our last ecology episode, we mentioned that ecological Leninism. Do you recall that? Yeah. Okay. So this is basically a guy reacting to that. Okay. It's like, oh, hmm, let's see how we could apply that. And so this is his uh, take on it. Uh, written by Derek Wall in August. Nina Simone, discussing her early life and friendships, noted, We never talked about men or clothes. It was always Marx, Lenin, or revolution. Real girls talk. <laughs> Do Greens talk about Marx, Lenin, or revolution? I am not sure. When I mentioned that I was going to write something about green Leninism, Rob Breyer, a former Bristol Green Party counselor, so he has elected to local office, said the concept made him laugh. 
As an ex-Green Party member, I don't have my finger on the pulse of internal Green Party debate, but green or ecological Leninism seems to be popping up in many discussions. The Swedish eco-socialist, the one that we talked about uh, in the previous episode, Andreas Malm, has proclaimed that, quote, it is time to try out ecological Leninism. A variety of revolutionary groups are discussing climate change in terms of Lenin's work on imperialism. Typically, Red Fight Back, which includes former members of the Green Party, notes that the emerging conflict between the U.S. and China, China means that the analysis China. of of climate crisis without a rejection of imperialist war is inadequate. Taking a look at Extinction Rebellion, they observe, the practical importance of the communist approach to the environmental crisis is marked by the ab absence of imperialism from Extinction Rebellion's, the org's, analysis. This, this is evident when considering war, as imperialism is reliant upon the exploitation of the oppressed world. It necessarily enforces its domination by means of military force. If we are able to tackle the environmental crisis, then we must also address this system of global exploitation, which necessitates this brutal violence. This is contained in a simple fact. The U.S. military is the largest polluter on the face of the earth. Yeah. So this is expressed in that the Green Party, especially with our eco-socialist um, now dominant leanings, is anti-imperialist explicitly like we we um it was green party leaders who protected the bolivian embassy oh really or uh, what no no sorry it was the venezuelan embassy huh. while guaido was attempting to basically start his government into exile and stuff like that oscar Berlug, a Bristol-based academic and co-author of a new book on Extinction Rebellion, argues that a more Leninist, which is a lot bigger in the UK, by the way, um, but there are some chapters that started here in America. It argues that more Leninist technique is part of the XR brand. By this, he means that more horizontal anarchic approaches of movements like Occupy is making way for one based upon a clear plan for movement building and political change. Lenin, it has been argued, was a passionate advocate of conservation and established a network of national parks. While both Stalin and Trotsky have been criticized by environmentalists, Lenin's love of hiking and country pursuits and having a cat, that's added by me, uh, aligns him with green movements. Controversial Controversy about what went right or wrong about the Soviet environment is a wider discussion. While it is important, I don't think that is core to these very discussions at the moment. Quite what we mean by Leninism, let alone how it relates or not to the climate crisis, is also a big topic. Lenin is best known for his model on the vanguard political party, a disciplined, almost military machine. The general assumption from supporters is that this was an effective instrument for making revolution. By opponents, it is criticized as authoritarian and violent. Both true. Yeah. There has been plenty of dogmatic, dull, and even frankly abusive examples of parties claiming to follow this. The recent biographical account by Claire Cohen of the Workers' Revolutionary Party, while extreme, is instructive in this regard. However, political parties that abuse their members or engage in other unethical practice are depressingly common across the political spectrum. Lenin was also keen to argue that the Bolsheviks existed in a particular historical context. With secret police trying to smash up any political organization on the left in the Tsarist Russia, a centralized party model was championed. So if they were in a different context, maybe they would do something else. Hmm. 
And that's the mindset we should be in. Uh, there was a good discussion of the relationship between Lenin's thought and more democratic, more restrictive models. Uh, Lenin's political thought, theory and practice, democratic and socialist revolutions by Neil Harding is my favorite book recommendation. A good starting point for Green Leninism is another discussion concept. His name is, uh, Kali Akuno. He's a Mississippi-based eco-socialist. He argues that Lenin, he argues that Lenin is still one of the geniuses that the movements have produced. He notes that while we can learn a lot from very political traditions, and while Lenin is far from infallible, he posed the question of how we make political change in a particular context. Lenin, too, noted that the rich and powerful will never... So it's not like he's giving us the answer. It's, he's actually he's giving us questions. Hmm. That's kind of where we're going, mining for the right questions. Yeah. Specifically posted on an anarchist website. Uh, this is fascinating. Oh, then Lenin, too, noted that the rich and powerful will never give up their wealth and power without a fight. Climate change isn't just the product of bad people doing bad things, ready to be replaced by good people doing good things, but right. a product of capitalism. Capitalism and its need for profit and growth, those are the two particular qualities we're focused on, tends to degrade the environment. Marx's discussions of ecological crisis are becoming better known now. However, Lenin's politics took things further. For all that went right and wrong with Leninism, and another thing that like that's getting on here is the focus on imperialism. Right. So there's a lot of, like, Greens and other, the boutique socialist orgs, independent left, we're really tiny, but at least we're properly anti-imperialist. But that's kind of what makes us pariahs when it comes to progressives and other left faces. Right. Is that like we criticize the empire and imperialism and point out that we can't really be green or environmentalist without cutting the military. Yeah. And they all freak out. It's like, no, 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 it's a loser. We'll, we won't get anything done doing that. And that includes a Mr. Bernard Sanders. Because he dropped all that in the 80s when he ran for mayor. And it's, it's again, like, oh, socialists can win, but we have to drop the anti-imperialism. Mm. But it's like, well, we're not going to solve any of the intelligent react or solve any problems that way. The context in 2021 is very different from that of 1917. But Lenin's razor sharp focus on context, along with his dictum that without any proper theory, there can be no proper movement. This makes him worthy of a detailed investigation. Nina Simone discussed Marx, Lenin, and revolution. So should we, especially as temperatures are rising. Yeah. So, so to put this in practice, um, or rather, okay, so we're in a certain context. Right. And we need a theory of action, strategy, and just to put together a game plan of sorts. Even if it's just a very general one, like what is and then the mindset to have, the, the consciousness. Well, here's a guy who's an experienced activist, organizer, and politician in the uh, in the Canadian Green Party. Oh, yeah, I wanted to mention something. The Alliance Party I mentioned earlier with the uh, political uh, results, uh, the election results, the Alliance Party's tagline is not left or right, but forward. You know, mm. which is a moderate, like a kind of like we're right. not left or right, we're the middle, <laughs> uh, or, or 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 neither. Uh, we're right. better. And uh, we don't need ideology, and we're apolitical or something. But anyway, it's funny because that's the same tagline that the Canadian Greens use. Huh. So this is called, the, it's time for the Greens to reinvent themselves. A British Columbia Green Party co-founder urges a radical new path, 
pursuing electoral power hasn't paid off, and the planet can't wait. His name is Michael McGoingle. McGoingle, yeah. (laughs) That's that's a good guess there. So uh, he's an eco-research professor, faculty of law and school environmental studies in Victoria. Uh, He was a former chair of Greenpeace Canada, co-founded Forest Futures, which is called the Dogwood Initiative. And this is from a site called The the Tree, or it's the Tyree, or it's T-Y-E-E. So that's a reference to something I don't know anything about. I'm not in that subculture. Yeah. I'm sure it's Canadian. I don't know what's a boot. Let's get started. Do you want me to read? Uh, please. Elections for the leaders of the provincial and federal Green parties are ongoing, sparking conversations about the best candidate in the party's platforms. But given the limited inroads made in a decade pursuing electoral power, a different challenge faces the Greens. As the climate crisis clock winds down, it's time for the party to reinvent itself and, in the process, reinvent politics. Here is my proposed roadmap. I offer it as one with deep ties to the movement. I co-founded the provincial party, and I am a long-time environmental activist in academic writing about environmental law and politics. I remember how the Greens came to be and their early ambitions. Like the environmental movement generally, the Greens have their roots in the activism of the 1960s and 70s, the years of social rebellion and the quest for alternatives. Both manifested strongly in British Columbia, for example, in the Back to the Land movement and the rise of direct action tactics through the new groups like Greenpeace. At the time, British Columbia's environmental culture was affected by the flood of American draft dodgers into the province. From the Kootenannies to the Gulf Islands, Vancouver to Haida Gwaii, theirs is a legacy of resistance and reinvention. As a Greenpeace campaigner in the 1970s and 80s and a co-founder of Greenpeace International in 1978 to 1979, as well as the British Columbia Green Party in 1983, I still draw inspiration from that era. In particular, I recall the birth of Germany of Die Grünen, the Greens, who embraced, who embraced direct action against building new freeways and nuclear power plants and American nuclear missiles being installed in Europe. So the anti-nuke movement in America followed suit. It was called the clamshell movement. Okay. And that was something that Howie Hawkins was directly involved in as well, especially in the Northeast. Working with Bookchin, working with Sanders in Vermont, because nuclear plants were being going to be built in New Hampshire, and there was direct action to stop that. And like with pipelines today, you obstruct long enough or enough times, even if you're moved away by police or whatever, you just keep coming back and disrupting. You cost them a lot of money and they actually give up because uh, you just you just make it too costly to go forward. And that's kind of happening with fossil fuel infrastructure over and over again when there is resistance, direct action resistance that costs people money, that breaks property, or at least blocks the use of property. So, yeah. Yes. These years were also informed by a critical dialogue that drew attention to the systemic problems of alienation and domination driven by the rise of corporate capitalism and middle class consumerism. You know, zeitgeist of our time. Right. This dialogue drew on a raft of popular books like Small is Beautiful to the One Dimensional Man. In tandem with countless university sit-ins, activists challenged the so-called hegemony of mainstream institutions, talking about the 60s, of course, and shaped people saw normal and possible. Such a countercultural dialogue and its radical agenda is largely absent from today's environmental movement. Now, this brings to mind a thought about how 
that the sixties, and I think this is like a Matt Crispin point that the sixties were when like you had counterculture, you actually had new culture being created because America was not only a global hegemon, but it was actually producing stuff. It was our golden age. We had a very high growing economy, thus was the material base for new culture to be created. Right. Since we have been in decline since the seventies or in post modernity, we haven't really made new culture. It's always just been more rehashes or just more interpret new interpretations of old culture. That um, it, it was a kind of simple media analysis, but it was like a looking, relooking at the Austin Powers movies. That it kind of started, or it was doing something different in that it was a new property, new IP. But by the third movie, it's making fun of the fact that the anything new that's created, its 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 goal or end game is to then be remade into a new movie right. with Tom Cruise. Yeah. Uh, if you recall the end of Goldmember. But um, pointing out that it was one of the first times it was using 60s nostalgia. Now, he did it because Mike Myers has 60s nostalgia because his father was in that subculture. Right. And it was so it kind of made for his father. And the fact that, you know, well, he was tying it into like, yeah, now what everything, now since the Austin Powers movies, at least the historical trend is like all the top movies are now sequels or remakes. Uh, well, yeah. before it was half of them, now it's all of them. Uh, I'm not going to lay into that anymore because there's always new independent stuff that is unique or interesting and in saying something new. So I'm not going to say there's nothing new that's being made. Of course, there's always, but new no one's things. watching it or it's some niche subculture. Yeah. Yeah. It's not mainstream. And, yeah. uh, anyway, so go back to. This old green guy permeating a degrunen was a tension between those dedicated to the fundamental goal of building a new world through collective social action and those realists seeking incremental change for the political process. Surprise, surprise. Same old story. This was evident in the famous struggle between the German, what the Germans called the fundies and the realos. In 1980, uh, they chose the path of the realos and became a political party. Nonetheless, throughout the 80s, green was still a radical term. However, over time, the word was co-opted, and green became a description of an environmentally friendly dish soap. In the pursuit of political power, the Green Party also trimmed its sales to gain acceptance within the mainstream, which is kind of the argument made by yeah. realist politics. You mind if I... Go ahead. Uh, jump right. right. In Canada over the past decade, being a green has meant being a member of a parliamentary-style party. Over that time, the Greens held a single seat in the Federal House of Commons as well as in the British Columbia Legislature. Today, it has three seats out of 338 in Ottawa and two out of 87 in Victoria. This is not a route that will save the planet. So how might the Greens work to achieve system change? Put simply, by returning to their roots, by redirecting their ambitions from gaining power inside the legislature to enhancing collection out. Uh, collective action in the world outside it. This is the difference between political reform and social reformation. If not state politics, where is the new arena for action? Consider, for example, the support for renewable energy as an alternative to fossil fuels and electric cars as a way to slow carbon change. Dozens of government initiatives now promote this reformist agenda. Yet, where is the progress on reducing society's still profligate use of energy and metals or reining in the power of big energy companies, car and truck makers, and corporate advertisers? 
How else can we remake our cities except by getting private vehicles out? To achieve such changes, the reformer would need to address the material and economic foundations of our dominant liberal order. By liberal order, I don't mean the liberal party as contrasted with the conservatives. This only matters for Canadian listeners. <laughs> I mean the whole social order built on a philosophy that celebrates the self-seeking individual and institutions that give vent to that individualism. In particular, market capitalism in a centralized state. This order has long minimized the social environmental health of local communities that it sweeps aside to get the economic resources beneath their feet. These resources fueled the colonization that created the new money-based wealth that was mobile and could be concentrated in the hands of a few. It enabled the geographical centralization of power in the cities and in the middle and upper classes of the countries of the north. Success came to be measured in the self-referential indicators like the gross domestic product and the value of stock portfolios. This is the history of development as it eviscerated the power of territorial-based societies to say no. From the colonization of the New World in the Americas since the 15th century to the long destruction of the regional cultures of the European Old World over the same centuries, to the enslavement of societies in Africa since the 17th century, today's liberal order enhanced the power of distant space over the health of local places. I just want to pipe in that, like, the narrative of white supremacy and thus American nationalism is that even though no one had the right to say no to it, it was good for them in the long run, which is the conservative narrative on all that. Driving that pattern were two emergent forces, the new economics of capitalism with its internal logics of profit-seeking and growth, and the new politics of the state with its sovereign logic of territorial expansion and top-down control. As this capitalist state system became entrenched, it also became unable to, uh, to confront its contradictions. For example, the avowedly democratic state may uh, promise to keep the destructive excesses of capital in check, yet its survival depends on the very exploitation that is supposed to control. This is why so many popular sustainability initiatives, from green energy to fisheries management to endangered species protection, don't end up challenging the growth trajectory, but extending it. Only one thing can change this historical imbalance slowing the momentum of centralized power by enabling its long-neglected other, the self-sustaining potential of place. So what? this is where, like, so, like, the whole, like, why is he giving a retread of the history of development in modern life? Because he's trying to, like, he's putting down the base of, like, we're talking about land, talking about control of it, and thus place. Mm. And this is where the new thing So okay. what is this place that the Greens might champion? Place has long been the explicit concern of indigenous peoples. It is also implicit in environmentalist concern for healthy ecosystems in opposition to mining and clear-cut logging, industrial agribusiness, and dam building. But in a world of big cities, jet travel, and globalized trade, the impacts of wealth creation and consumption are out of sight, out of mind, and out of control. Recently, worldwide demonstrations reflect broad concerns about climate change and the need for system change. The time is right for a new politics of place that can shore up and extend self-maintaining local territories. 
for millennia living in place to find human existence. For indigenous societies, the traditional territory long spoke to the land as the context for communal life. From spiritual training of the young to the collective endeavors of hunting and gathering and fishing to the shared stories and rituals inherited from and passed along by their community ancestors. Writing in 1944, the great historian Karl Polanyi explained how land-based communities flourished throughout economic and political practices of reciprocity and redistribution. Colonial expansion untethered this communal rootedness in self-government. To Polanyi, this constituted the planet's great transformation. Even so, as recently as the 1950s, most families in North America stayed close to home year-round, worked for a local employer, ate locally, took local holidays, and consumed much less. I would probably point out this is probably what the people are thinking of when it comes to great again, or like, why can't things be like they used to be? And it's like, because things were rooted in place, and then at the same time, market economics and globalism push people away from each other. Things aren't as good as they used to be because capitalism. Yes, not not just because we desegregated. <laughs> <laughs> or gave people rights or acknowledged uh, women yeah. as uh, well, a more little, than breadfruit mares. Yeah. Well, a little over half a century later, few vestiges of this self-reliant localism remain, victim to the exponential growth needed to build a competitive national economy. What is the alternative, and how could the Greens help bring it about? In short, they would need to revitalize what the Canadian scholar Shiri Pasternak calls grounded authority. To reinvigorate communities of place would require not just cultural and material support, but legal protection. Such communities would need the constitutional status that gives the power to resist. This is not to deny, but reground the national and the global. So there, that, that this is... This is the new part for me, anyway. Like the the idea of not rejecting nationalism, or whatever, but just re, if not reappropriating it, but redefining it as being, uh, he'll go on a bioregionalism. Right. I think this is expressed in the fact that our local Green Party chapter is called the Upper Hudson Green yeah. Party. We could, I mean, the eventual goal would be to have individual county parties. Okay. Like if we were a group of 10 in each county instead of a group of 10 for the, the region. Right. But the upper Hudson refers to the bioregion. Okay. It's the geography. It's the watershed. We're representing yeah. a watershed, not a political entity that's untethered called Clinton County. Right. Or, or, or Herkimer. Or Albany, or Schenectady. Yeah. But even though these are indigenous, some of these are indigenous place names. Otherwise, uh, near Hudson, of course, but yeah, there's an Iroquois name for the river too. Uh, the Iroquois name was, uh, the river that flows two ways, but in their mm-hmm. language. I remember learning that in, I think, middle or elementary school because the Hudson River does flow the other way, at least with the tides. Yes. Yeah. At least down towards the city. It takes something a very long time because you have, um, there's actually a, a physics calculation. It's in the fun little physics thing yeah. to give kids is, uh, you have this many, you know, the current goes this fast and then the tide comes in and it's this fast. How long will it take a log to go down the Hudson? Hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I have it written down on a page actually, but it's not in front of me. 
Well, the opportunity reconciliation. Yeah, reconciliation presents. presents. So, yes, yeah, so and the next section here is, is um, there's two more. And this one is where he's kind of covering the local, well, the current struggles of Native peoples in Canada. So, yeah, you can go on right. with that. The, not, in the 1960s, this narrative informed the so-called bioregional movement and practice of re-inhabitation. This meant shifting economic production and government back to self-governing communities committed to social and environmental health. Based on dozens of examples, my research group at the University of Victoria developed the Community Ecosystem Trust as a vehicle to dissolve state power in British Columbia. Anyway, well, I like articles like these because yeah, basically, they're basically tying 20 different topics I've already covered into one. Into right. like one strategy almost. So it's, it's very, it's that synthesis where he's the paragraph. He mentions the Zapatistas. Yeah. He mentions back to like things in the movements in the sixties, clamshell, all these things. And they were all connected in part of one continuity. Now in the past, like he's mentioning something that had very various results, you know, back to the land movement. It, it didn't grow. It, it was, it went pretty stagnant. And by the late eighties, it was kind of, if not bust, but you, you right. have some, legacy results where you have some hippies who own some land out in the, in the boonies. That's the, that's the result of back to the land. It didn't grow. Uh, even though the intention was to reverse or at least resist the globalization of like, okay, Jamaica, you just grow bananas. You don't right. need any local industry or to make your own stuff. That's why we have, and this was mentioned by the MMT guy or, or no, maybe it was the Marxist retorting him, but like mentioning that, like Saudi Arabia doesn't have any oil refineries. It's a type of, it's the mercantilism that's why America revolted. That we were sending our raw resources to then be refined or processed in Britain. Right. Just as Saudi Arabia has to export all of its oil, which is then refined in New Jersey and Texas, and then it's shipped back for them to buy Ugh. as gasoline for their cars. And, and people say capitalism is the most efficient system. Uh, or as efficient as we can get because socialism has a calculation problem that totally couldn't be solved by computing right, or direct democracy. But we haven't been able to try that because whenever a socialist government wants to, they get code. Yep. How long do you think Bolivia is going to get cooed again? Well, uh, the discussion about them is that, you know, they've been allowed to win and thus they'll be blunted and they're going to behave and not fight the IMF and the uh, global system as much. Like there'll be some compromises now um, and that will be the result of, of all that. Well, let's see. But that, but this will mean they're letting their base down and then they're going to end up being cynical and, uh, and whatnot. But of course, they're also radicalized and they know how to organize and have resistance movements. Yeah. Uh, that aren't electorally based. So we'll see what ends up happening. But anyway, uh, where did you leave off? A dramatic um, staging of yeah. movement of Zapatistas, maybe? Yep. A, dr a dramatic staging of this movement occurred in 1994 when the Zapatistas in Mexico revolted against the new transitional trade deal, NAFTA. Transnational. Transnational, sorry. That yeah, undermined whatever. their communal land base. The, Ahido. The American economist Eleanor Ostrom. Ostrom showed how much land tenures made possible a 
workable form of governing. In 2008, that work won her the Nobel Prize. I will read her eventually on this. However unfamiliar this idea of the self-sustaining socio-ecosystem may be, it is age-old. Yet governments continue to displace practices like community-managed forests and fisheries with corporate licenses with no attachment to place. From British Columbia to Newfoundland, India to Somalia, the results have been famously disastrous. Enter the 2007 United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. When I read recently that British Columbia's government was going to accept UNDRIP, I was excited but skeptical. After all, its goal is essentially to give authority to self-sustaining socio-ecosystems. This is what the recent struggle is about. There, there we saw how granting local socio-ecosystems the power to protect their land and its peoples makes it difficult to build more roads and pipelines, to dig up more fossil fuels and ship them to global markets. In a less constrained world, this authority could be celebrated as a disruptive innovation. I love this paragraph. To borrow a phrase from entrepreneurial capitalist. Is it innovative? Yes. Is it disruptive? For sure. It is even entrepreneurial. But is it going to be embraced by the powers that be? Not on your life. And so our NDP, uh, what's that? Government. National That's, Democratic they're, they're the Party. New, de- yeah, no, new, new Democrats. Democratic Party. They're they're the um they're the Social Democrats of Canada. Ah, okay. They've broken off from the Liberals. Uh, you know the Trudeau wing. They're they're more progressive Democrats, basically. All right. But that's that's saying a lot, considering the Greens are kind of more like progressive Dems in right. Canada. So <laughs> well, our NDP government put an important caveat on its acceptance of UNDRIP. There would be no veto power given to a First Nation over access to their traditional territories. This ultimate say would rest with a state whose sovereignty and wealth depends on its control of its land base. Ah, but we in Canada have embraced the promise of reconciliation. Unfortunately, this does nothing to... Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, though. This does nothing to support territorial integrity. In fact, it does the opposite, as governments seek to reconcile with First Nations with payouts if they acquiesce to resource development, board memberships, and jobs where they join in corporate partnerships for oil and gas production and embrace new capitalist profit via casinos and real estate. Is reconciliation just another example of the age-old pattern of hegemony, uh, delay, and co-option? Yes. Seems to be. Consider, to the British Columbia Treaty process. From today, it traces its roots back almost 60 years to the launch of the Calder case that led to the famous 1967 Supreme Court decision. That's three generations where indigenous communities extended vast sums to pursue dozens of costly court actions. Before that, from 1927 to 1951, the federal government actually banned First Nations from raising that money to hire lawmakers for such purposes. Let's skip ahead. Um, so what, what could be the work for reinvented Greens? But of course, any Green could mean any radical leftist, basically. Yeah. You listening there. Uh, today, real reconciliation is an imperative for everyone. For the Greens, this means doing the work to empower place-based social ecosystems. In the terminology of constitutional law, the socio-ecosystems must again become 
constituent power. That is a systemic power where the grounded communities can reconstitute who they are and what their life world will become. To achieve this, the Greens would jettison their obsession with achieving formal political power, but work to develop a caucus of individuals whose day-to-day jobs would be as local facilitators of change at the level of each person's so- uh, socio-ecosystem. Such a green representative would not be an indistinct. indistinct politician in the distant institutions, but an actual reformer of local practices and institutions. The greens might even reconstitute their constituency, whether rural or urban, to map onto its physical bioregion. So instead of doing it by county or even local government, but to do it by land base, like watersheds or other such qualities uh, categories linking local action to global network the greens would create their path and their movement as they go there are many prosaic details for example to support their work facilitators could reinvent the old tactic of the in-person door-to-door canvas this would make possible the interpersonal i.e pre-internet community dialogue that is essential to building an activist movement. Today, party memberships are about the unending ask for money, not grounded engagement. Central to this incipient movement could be a new green parliament, that is, a place to speak, where local facilitators can exchange ideas and experiences and coordinate Mm -hmm. their activities in the language of Polyani and Ostrom. This parliament could function as a true house of the commons. These facilitators could also put their names forward to win formal power in the provincial or federal assemblies. When they did, they would not be another anonymous name campaigning with vague promises designed to appeal to the lowest common denominator of the electorate. Rather, they would be real locals with experience and connections to putting green ideas into practice. This would reinvent the nature of political leadership, as anyone elected to the big house would be accountable to those already coordinating their activities in their greenhouse, pun intended. So I want us to uh, jump in. All right. The road to imagining like how to do this, like say here in Albany or Schenectady, uh, Yes, you moved Albany, right? Um, Latham. I'm in, oh, Latham. Okay. I'm in Latham now. So even if you were doing it in Latham, like imagining how to do that, like, so he's describing like starting a general assembly, forming a shadow government, a shadow government that say represents community projects. Yeah. And this is basically all under the category of dual power building. Right. Uh, so all, everything he's describing Henry has the name dual power where you basically build community projects, mutual aid stuff, and it federates or confederates, but it federates into a shadow government, a parallel government that is doing everything that a government does. It has self-governance. It has authority because it has people's consent and participation, which the local constitutional government actually doesn't have. Meanwhile, they have monopoly over violence with the police. They have a monopoly over taxation and the currency. The fact that it taxes, that's the only reason that a dollar matters. Right. A dual power government could have its own currency. The only reason we need to ever use dollars is because if we have property within a locality or say the U.S., we have to pay them that business card. Right. And 
And that's where, like, then the actual political fight occurs in we're not going to pay our taxes anymore. We don't need any of your services. After all, you've been cutting them all of these decades. We don't need it because you obviously have made it clear through policy and action, you don't need us. Time to secede. More or less. But imagining how to do that in practice, I'm speaking personally here, like oh. I've because I've had ideas of like doing this myself, dual power building, having like because we did it in Occupy. Right. We had a general assembly, and it's almost like we started with the assembly. I think like the the difference would be we we have community projects, and then they federate and form a spokes council or a GA. Okay. Instead of having a GA, which is then meant to split off into working groups and community projects. I feel like both are viable, but yeah. Occupy was the latter. Right. With everyone gathers and then divvies up like, we want to do this, 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 and this. Let's all break. But then we all then became independent silos eventually. And then we stopped needing a GA or people were less interested in coming back to report on what they were doing. Or we just needed a big space to hold those meetings with more than 10 people. Right. Um, and parks weren't allowed to do that. We could still basically still do them. It yeah. just wouldn't be a full-time occupation with tents right. and stuff. If we just did those meetings in the, in public, um, yeah. that could be something we look to do. Um, but then it's the, like I said, getting a bunch of people from all these other works to show up yeah. as spokespeople, as delegates. Now we're, we're experimenting with doing that with le- our independent leftist groups. Oh, so yeah. we're kind of starting with that. Uh, with people who are committed ideologically right. before being committed materially, which is probably what's more important yeah. of I'm involved with community projects because I have to be. Yeah. And, and there are all these people in, in our locality that are like that already. They just don't, they talk, but it's informal. Mm. Like there's circles and there's clicks and there's networks, networking, yep. but it's all informal. Okay. And there's, so there's no dual power there. And then, and, and then, died. and thus, if they want to do something formal, they have to go to the local government. And then they're basically, I, I see that as being co-opted. Then they have to, they get their picture taken with the mayor. They get acknowledged by the, the Hearst newspaper, the corporate news. And before you know it, it's like they're not dual power building anymore. I mean, they're still doing what's necessary, mutual aid, community building, whatever. But then it's, it's, it's going, it's being as a conduit to almost, uh, give legitimacy to the very institutions that led to them doing the, the community work in the first place. Right. But because they're at odds or they're, they're just, they're not really as compatible, but it, it's in practice, it's almost, it seems like they're compatible at least in like what happens, but it gives right. me a sense of anxiety thinking about like how many people are, are okay with how things work because well, there isn't some independent green shadow government, that they would go to that can do stuff with them or for them. But as a facilitator, as it's a political facilitator, that's kind of the role I've been trying to carve out for myself. And then the only thing that I've kind of made out of it is doing this radio show. Right. And maybe we'll do round more round tables or something yeah. like that, that then become meetings or something. But I mean, I've, I've learned to be a facilitator for that particular reason. I can run meetings and people like them. Okay. So thank you for joining us on three left show. You want to sign off? All right. Uh, we only have like literally 10 seconds. So. Uh, so thank you so much for watching. We're on the social media and yeah, have a great week.